This is the Tao of Christ, and I'm Marshall Davis. In this podcast, I explore the mystical roots of Christianity, which Jesus called the Kingdom of God, which church historian Evelyn Underhill called the Unit of Life, and which Richard Rohr calls the Universal Christ, and which I refer to as Christian non-duality, unitive awareness, or union with God. This is the Tao of Christ. Good morning, this is Marshall Davis. Today I'm going to talk about the book of Job and the problem of suffering and spiritual awakening. I've said before that the reason why many Christians do not investigate or even know about the possibility of spiritual awakening is because they don't hear about it from the pulpit or see examples of it in the Bible. So they settle for a second-hand faith of believing in things. But the truth is that there are biblical examples hiding in plain sight, and one of them is the Old Testament character of Job. Job is an Old Testament Buddha. The events that lead both of these men to their awakenings are similar. The impetus for Siddhartha Gautama's search for enlightenment was the problem of suffering. It is represented in the Buddhist tradition by the story of Gautama seeing the four sights of an old person, a dead person, a sick person, and then a monk who was determined to overcome suffering. His first sermon that he gave in Deer Park after his enlightenment was the Four Noble Truths, which were about suffering, the reality of suffering, the cause of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the Eightfold Path to accomplish that. We find the same sort of thing happening in the Hebrew book of Job. Job's spiritual awakening, which occurs at the end of the book, is a result of Job struggling with the problem of suffering. Job is a wonderful example of a path that Westerners can take to spiritual awakening what the East calls enlightenment or liberation, and which the West calls salvation or eternal life. Job was a righteous man who lived long ago in the mythical land of Uz, not to be confused with the land of Oz. Interestingly, he is portrayed not as a Jew, even though this is Jewish sacred scripture, but as a Gentile. Job had received in his life the earthly rewards for right living. He was healthy and wealthy, and he had a lot of kids, and he lived a long life. He had everything that he ever wanted, and then one day it all began to go wrong. In a series of catastrophes, he loses it all. His wealth, his children, his health... All he is left with is his pain and his wife, who is constantly nagging at him. The book of Job is the account of Job wrestling with the problem of why these terrible things were happening to him, since he had always lived a good and holy and righteous life. The moral philosophy that the book of Job confronts is the idea that life is just, 
this is the dominant theory of the Old Testament that this is a moral universe where good is rewarded and evil punished. But Job discovers firsthand that this philosophy is not working in his case. His dialogue partners in the book, in his exploration of this religious and philosophical problem, are three friends, and then later a fourth friend comes in. Their arguments are variations on the theme that Job's suffering is just punishment from God for a wrongdoing that Job has done. The problem is that Job has never done anything wrong, according to the book, at least nothing that he is aware of, and certainly nothing to deserve all this suffering. The religious arguments of his friends do not ring true to Job's experience in life. The whole book, which is 42 chapters long, is this righteous man struggling with this moral, religious, theological problem. This problem is normally called the problem of evil or the problem of suffering. It's the same problem that Western religion and philosophy has struggled with for thousands of years, and it is a problem inherent in all forms of theism, including Christianity. The classic statement of this philosophical problem was articulated by the Greek philosopher Epicurus in the 4th century BC. How can an all-good and all-powerful God allow evil? This is the way he put it. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing, then why call him God? No one has been able to answer this problem adequately, although thousands have tried. It is the Achilles heel of theism, the chief reason why so many thoughtful people have abandoned the traditional concept of God and organized religion. Personally, I agonized through this while deconstructing my Christian faith starting in 2009 and ending in 2012. It is one of the chief factors that led up to me transcending traditional religion and breaking open into a reality that cuts through all theological problems like this, like Alexander the Great cutting through the Gordian knot. A book came out of my theological struggle with the problem of evil, as well as other problems of traditional theism. I entitled the book, Thank God for Atheists, subtitled, What Christians Can Learn from the New Atheism. In one chapter of that book, I go through every type of argument that has been made by Christian apologists to explain or explain away the problem of evil and suffering. It is my own struggle with the same issue that Job is wrestling with in the book. And it resulted in the same type of spiritual opening to God that Job had. I don't have the time to repeat that chapter 
here in full, but it's in my book, which I will be glad to give free to anybody who might want to read it. I'm not trying to, to sell it here. I'm going to give it away free, and I'll explain to you at the end of this episode how you can get it. In a chapter of that book, I explore nine basic approaches that Christians use in addressing the problem of suffering and evil, and I'm going to mention them here briefly. The first is the justice defense. It is the one most commonly found in the Bible, and it's the one that is on the lips of Job's friends. Suffering is understood as the action of God, who is dispensing divine justice in history, rewarding good and punishing evil. This is the approach dominant in Jewish religion at the time that the book of Job was written and is found in, in various forms and other religions as well. In Eastern religion it's called karma, that every good deed is rewarded and every bad deed is punished, if not in this life, then in the next. The second approach is the testing defense. Suffering is understood as God testing our faith. This is the approach given in the opening and the closing chapters of the book of Job. Those sections were added years after the main part of the book was written. It sees the suffering of Job as a contest between Satan and God to test Job's faith. This idea is also found in the story of Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac. The third is the spiritual growth defense, also known as the soul-making defense. This approach sees suffering as a means by which God teaches us lessons in life. Whatever does not kill you makes you stronger, which is ironically a quote by Friedrich Nietzsche. This is a common argument in pop spirituality today, so-called New Age, where souls keep returning to Earth until they get it right. Everything that happens in life contains a lesson to be learned. The fourth is the eschatological defense. This argues that the problem of evil and suffering in this life is resolved in the next life. This theological patch was designed to deal with the observation that this life obviously is not just, that the innocent suffer and the evil prosper. Therefore, God must have a way to fix it. So God sorts out everything after death. Any unjust suffering endured now will be compensated for in the hereafter in heaven. Any evil will be punished in hell. The bad guys are not going to get away with it. In Eastern religion, this justice is meted out in future lives through reincarnation on earth or in other spiritual realms. The good will ultimately get their rewards and the bad guys will get their punishment and all is right with the universe, problem solved, so they think. The fifth is the free will defense, a common argument used by Christian apologists to explain suffering and evil is to blame it on human free will. It's our fault, not God's fault. It is said that God had to give us free will or we would just be puppets. God is off the hook. All suffering results from necessary 
human free will. In this scenario, it is our fault, or at least it was our primordial parents, Adam and Eve's fault. But this does not account for suffering that clearly has nothing to do with human actions. The fifth is the duality defense, also called the contrast defense. It says that evil and suffering is just the nature of the universe. There can be no good without evil. God had to create, or at least allow, evil. We would not know what good is unless we have something to compare it with. There is no light without darkness, no high without low, no pleasure without pain. We would not know what good is without evil. Evil and suffering are a necessary part of this universe. This is the best defense so far, but it still doesn't solve the problem, for heaven is supposedly a place where there is free will and is without evil or suffering, so it seems that God can create a world without evil. Seventh is the mysterious purpose defense or unknown purpose defense. This is the final refuge for theodicists. It is the argument of last resort, sometimes known as the greater good defense or the mystery defense. This says that the solution to the problem of evil and suffering is beyond human comprehension, that somehow all the evil in the world is going to result in a greater good, but we can't really see that now. It is a mystery. Nevertheless, we can rest assured that God has it all under control in some mysterious, wonderful way which we cannot possibly understand. Everything makes sense from a divine perspective. In my opinion, this is the biggest cop-out of all. It is just deciding to give up. When people find it too hard to think through this problem of suffering, or when they feel like when they do think about it too much, they might be getting into dangerous territory theologically, then they just stop, they quit, they give up, and they don't explore it any further. Eighth is the empathy defense. Mark Woods in an article in Christianity Today calls it the Narnia defense. In C.S. Lewis's the magician's nephew, Diggory's mother, is dying of cancer, and the lion, Aslan, who is the Christ figure, doesn't heal her, but cries great shining tears, it says. Woods interprets the scene this way. The idea is that God doesn't stand aloof from suffering, but mourns with us. That is all very well, but it cuts no ice with the mother of the child with bone cancer. She just wants her child to get better. Sympathy, divine or human, doesn't do that. Last is the patchwork defense, and this last argument is not a new one, but some combination of the other defenses, even though none of those other ideas by themselves can explain suffering and evil. Maybe if we patch them all together like a quilt, they'll do the job. Maybe there's not one theoretical theory of everything that explains all evil and suffering. Maybe it's a, a combination of defenses. If we piece them all together like a jigsaw puzzle, they'll do the trick. No, they don't. 
as I said, I don't have the time here to explore fully and refute every one of these defenses like I do in the book, but I struggled with each one of these possible answers for years during my ministry when I saw a lot of suffering. For several years I examined the foundations of my faith very thoroughly to see if these Christian answers really were true. I have concluded that none of these explanations for evil and suffering work. For that reason, traditional theism is, in my opinion, morally bankrupt and spiritually dead. It was this conclusion that pushed me beyond theism to what is called non-duality. Struggling with the problem of evil and then later dealing existentially with what I thought was my own imminent death pushed me beyond traditional religions and theological answers into a spiritual opening and awakening. I think it's the same thing that happened to Job. The problem of suffering and evil acts like a Zen koan for those who wrestle with it. It is an unsolvable problem that pushes us beyond our minds and beyond our self and beyond God to the spacious openness of unitive awareness. Read the closing chapters of the book of Job and you can recognize the signs of non-dual awareness. The long speech by God when God finally does show up is all about divine presence in the totality of the natural world. And the short exclamation of his awakening that's given by Job is about seeing God that is beyond human comprehension. He says, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Job was a Palestinian Buddha who might have lived at the same time as the Buddha in India, or maybe a thousand years before the Buddha, if the original Job lived in the patriarchal period, as some conservative scholars think. Most scholars, though, would place this book sometime in the exilic or the post-exilic period of Jewish history, which is the 6th century BC. In any case, it describes the same eternal experience of non-dual reality available in all ages, which grows out of the human desire to solve the problem of human existence and to solve the problem of suffering if we see it through to the end and we don't settle for blind faith or cheap grace. It is a theme symbolized by the cross of Christ which is why I still call myself a Christian. This approach in the book of Job, which I call God Inquiry, complements the typical non-dual approach called self-inquiry. This path to awakening may be more natural for those of us who are brought up in a Western religious tradition. It speaks to the issues of our culture 
and our hearts. It breaks us free from religion and ideas that seek to explain everything and lets us see reality directly. Now before I conclude this episode, I want to tell you how you can get my book, Thank God for Atheists, free. The way Amazon works is I can only offer it free for five days every 90 days. So starting today and for the next five days, you can order that Kindle book free. Just go to Amazon and you find my book. You can do a search for the title or search for my name or you can use a link that I'll put in the description on this episode. The chapter that I referred to here is chapter 6 which is entitled Questioning the God of Today but you might also be interested in the next chapter, chapter 7 which is called Reimagining God in which I talk about God as non-dual. In any case you can download it free to your Kindle or your Kindle app on your computer or iPhone if you're interested. That's it for today. Grace and peace to you. That is the Tao of Christ for today. Thank you for listening. You can access other episodes of this podcast at thedowofchrist.com. You can also find these podcasts in video format at my YouTube channel at christiannonduality.net. My blog, Spiritual Reflections, can be found at marshalldavis.us. There you will also find a link to my books and my email address. Join me next time for another episode of The Tao of Christ. Thank you.